0: My name is Owen Flynn and welcome to episode 24 of the Trail Running Ireland podcast. everybody we've got expert nutritionist Evan Lynch on the show this week with a fantastic Q&A ranging from optimum race nutrition to post-race beers and running coach Ireland head coach René Borg advises on how to set up the right heart rate training zones and then how to apply them to your training lots of great tips on the show this week everyone so let's get our running gear on let's go Welcome to episode 24 of the Trail Running Ireland podcast. Nearly at the marathon mark, nearly at episode 26. And uh, hopefully, we might get to episode 26 before our one year anniversary. Nearly one year on the airwaves now. We started in the middle of April, and who'd have thought it that here we are, one year later, nearly 26 episodes in. And before we start the starters' gun on this week's episode, a special thank you to Fiona, Steve, Barry, and Miriam, our new patreons for signing up over on our patreon page thank you guys and thank you to all of the patreons who are contributing every month to keeping the show going at the moment trail running it isn't premiership football as you know it's quite hard to find sponsorship or indeed get any financial return from the time invested into producing the show but of course that's not why we do it we do it because we love trail running and we want to help to grow the sport of trail and mountain running in ireland and if you haven't done so yet and you would like to contribute if anything from three euros to nine euros a month no more than that please do look us up over on the patreon page the trail running ireland podcast and i'll certainly do my best to deliver quality guests every month with as much as an emphasis as possible on our irish mountain and trail running community and all the different families that that involves guys let's get cracking on with episode 24 and looking forward as ever to our chat with our coaching guru Rene, great to have you back with us again. Rene Borg from Running Coach Ireland.
1: Hi, Owen, how are you?
0: Not too bad, Rene, not too bad. I'm looking forward to getting back racing as soon as we can. Hopefully, we'll get the green light for some racing soon. How are your clients in Running Coach Ireland um, handling things at the moment, Rene? I'm sure people are are planning ahead at this stage and trying as best as they can to be optimistic and to remain motivated for, for the rest of the year.
1: Yeah, we see nearly nearly every kind of reaction, you know, to the to current situation. There's a lot of a kind of quiet resignation and to the fact that there's no immediate races, right? there uh, yeah. uh, And some people are more optimistic than others uh, in terms of, of how early they'll be able to race. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm not there to disapprove anyone <laughs> of their optimism, uh, but we obviously try and have a plan B. And then I have a good few clients who have decided that it's going to be more likely that they can race in the UK, especially in the foreseeable futures, so, you know, so they're planning around that. And that's obviously because they, there's clear roadmaps in a lot of, in countries like the UK and a lot of continental Europe. And um, so it's a little bit clearer. Um, but, but at the same time, you know, we see, we don't want to kind of sugarcoat it all. Although, like we do see some real frustration starting to sneak through as well. You know, that's where you can see people are starting to be worn a bit thin emotionally, um, not necessarily by the training or the lack of races, but just the general situation.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Renny, and I mean, you know, we, we never like to talk too much about politics on the podcast, but I do hope that the, whoever makes these decisions regarding sports back home, that they do look at our neighbours over in the UK, across Europe, because as the listeners know, while I, I love producing our, our Trail Running Ireland podcast, I'm stuck in Las Palmas at the minute, and I can't get home, But in the Canary Islands and in Spain, which have had, you know, significantly worse figures than than back home in Ireland over the last 12 months, um, Spain has been up and running from a sporting point of view for a couple of months now. Trail races are all back across all the different regions. They have all their COVID measures and regulations in place. And I've actually got a trail running race this weekend, you know, there's, there's a couple of forms that we have to fill out before we go we have to promise not to bring friends and family members but the races are going ahead so with a bit of luck Rennie hopefully the the powers that be will have a bit of common sense and let us all get back out racing on, on home turf back in Ireland as soon as possible.
1: Yeah and in the meantime like my you know I try and focus on mainly what I can control certainly in the work situation you know so we as I think I alluded to an earlier podcast, we just try, we need to just try and keep people focused, you know, on the more immediate goals, the process goals and, and providing some kind of structure, which is, as you, as you know, it's having a structure right now is a nice kind of safety net. And, um, you know, if, if you don't have work and children, and the training plans, things like that. You know, uh, it, it, when when you're in a situation right now, as right now, and there's very, that's there's a bit of a hopelessness, and there's a lack of agency. You know, this kind of feeling that you are in control of your own destiny. It, yeah. Life can drift, um, and I think so. That's where we can play a bit of a role. You know, not to big it up too much, but um, we, you know, the training plans do provide a bit of that structure. You know, and uh, and we're able to focus people in on. As I say, when I say process goals, you know, so that we know what are we trying to do with the next four weeks, the next six weeks and wherever we want to be.
0: Yeah, and I know a lot of race directors are, are remaining positive, certainly for the second half of the year. You know, we see you know, the likes of Eco Trail and Paul there is remaining positive for the second half of the year. Kerry Way Ultra, you know, they have lots of positivity around um, their announcements regarding their race as well. There was a piece in the Irish Times with the Dublin Marathon this year, of course, as well, and the roads. And I'm sure our friends in Imra will be closely looking looking at their calendar and will do everything in their powers to get a couple of races. Up and running again for the summertime, and I'm sure everybody would would love a few Leinster League races or Munster League races on a Wednesday evening or Saturday morning. And um, but for our chat today, training-wise, really, we've had some really interesting discussion over the last couple of weeks. The listeners are really engaged with it regarding um, heart rate training and being in the right zones to avoid overtraining and to avoid undertraining as well. We've had a couple of questions about how do we actually establish those zones. And how many zones should we be working in? Because, you know, you have so many different apps and training applications, and they're all slightly different, Rene. So maybe two questions for today. How many zones would you recommend? And secondly, how would you recommend establishing those zones?
1: Yes, those who have listened for a while know that we I recommend five zones, um, but to kind of just it down for people a little bit like really there's four kind of gears that the human body has uh, which is easy medium or moderate hard and sprint you know that that's, that would be the ultimate simplification really of the types of running intensities that you will be working at and in fact there is a whole training system in france that's built around nothing but teaching people the difference between those four intensities you know no hybrid monitors or anything they only use that for data analysis <laughs> they just teach people what those feel like and then off they go and everything is prescribed based on, on that. So you, you can get quite far with that sort of simplification. Um, what we do though is um, because we have, we need to see um, people's data to, to try and give them proper feedback on whether the type of training we've asked them to do is also the type of training that they end up doing. So we try and establish both pace and heart rate zones when people first come in. And I do recommend that people do this and um, unless the, what I just told them just really resonates and in, in which case, you know, you, you can definitely try and go just with that subjective feel. But basically, when the we've mentioned before that there is d- this transition from easy to medium, that's called the aerobic threshold. So that's one zone transition that you want to figure out. And yeah. the second one is what people call lactate threshold. And that's the transition from medium to hard. And then there's this thing called VO2 max pace. That's one word for it, which is really the hard pace and the sweet spot for that. Um, And sprint, in a way, is the maximum pace you can sustain for 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you understand those four kind of, let's call them uh, thresholds, because they're just kind of like boundaries between where something changes in a major way inside your body once you reach that particular speed. So you kind of need to know, well, at what pace and at what heart rate is this happening? If you don't know it intuitively, you know, and if you're super experienced, you may know intuitively. You know, you can feel it. Now it's happening. Now I'm going from from easy to to medium. But the way to figure it out, one could be to go buy a book, look at a table, and it would give you these nice percentages and say, "Oh, your zone one is from seventy to eighty percent of your max heart rate." But the reality is that those zones aren't much good because. They're based on averages, you know. So it's it's looking at thousands and thousands of people and saying, well, on average, they kind of people zone one is here and people zone two is here. But nearly everyone, very few people, actually match the average person, right? Because it's it's just um, kind of a an artificial thing. So. Yeah you know i have looked over the years at lab tests compared to these and the lab tests for most people look totally different and because of that to actually be able to tell people and for you if you're listening to figure out your own zones it's better to test them and testing them of course you can go to a lab not at the moment probably but normally you could go to a lab you could pay 100 150 euro and they would generate zones for you so that's one way to do it job done Um, But you would have to do it regularly. And obviously, this is the downside. The zones change all the time because as you get fitter, as you detrain, they'll move up or down. Um,
0: Yeah. And I found with lab testing, René, that they can maybe present their own problems as well. Because first of all, you're going to be running flat out on a treadmill. I mean, you know, most people never run on treadmills. Ideally, people are outside and running. So, you know, it's slightly a bit more stressful maybe running on a treadmill indoors, with a very uncomfortable mask over your face as well. So that can maybe throw out the body a little bit as well. So they might necessarily be 100% accurate. So there's maybe no harm in doing the other outdoor tests, maybe more traditional, like, like your threshold test, your 30-minute runs, your six-minute runs, your 10-second power tests to establish those zones. And they might end up the very, very similar to a, to a lab test.
1: Yeah, Well, that's certainly the finding, right? So when, when the tests, for instance, that we picked for our particular purposes, and when we picked those tests, it was based on looking at which ones match lab results uh, the most closely, you know, and, and also to look at which ones seem very practical. So for instance, the, we can start from the, from the top, because I think that's the easiest. So we always want to know what's a person's max speed. And that's just to understand two things. One is to understand what type of athlete, you know, what type of animal is this runner? You know, are they very, very powerful, very, very fast? Are they kind of more middling? Are they lacking speed? You know, where are they on that spectrum? Um, So that's that's a very simple test. Um, What we do is we just have people run a nice little warm up. And then they do three, 200 meters as fast as they can with a long recovery in between each. Uh, that gives me a good indication of how fast they would do, you know, kind of long sprint reps. But the real part of that test is the fourth step, which is a 10 second all out sprint that is recorded on your watch. And that is really the closest you can get to a good indication of someone's maximum speed, you know, so typically, you might see in a very fast runner, you can sometimes see someone there running, uh, say 158 minutes per kilometer pace, right? So that's over 30 kilometers per hour. So that would be you know, a reasonably nice, fast athlete. Um, whereas we will see some older endurance runners, you know, they can't get anywhere near that, but that's okay. You know, we're just trying to, to form a picture of this particular athlete. So that would be the, the first and simplest test. The, and the only requirement for you to do it is that you are currently healthy enough to sprint, right? So don't do it if you're okay. currently recovering from a hamstring injury or something like that. You know, you yeah. and,
0: and I noticed, Rene, how you said, um, that's very good for establishing max power, but maybe not necessarily maximum heart rate, because I'm sure a lot of listeners will say, but how do I get my maximum heart rate? Can I get up to 180? And some people might even go as far as 200. Would 10 seconds be enough to get us as high as that?
1: No, because and no, and a test isn't designed for that, because at your um, your max heart rate takes longer than 10 seconds to rise, as, as you kind of alluded to there. Yeah. In the old days, I used to find people's max heart rate because we were using a different formula to calculate zones that required the maximum heart rate. But over the years, I've learned that it's actually a very little use because we prefer to build zones around the lactate heart rate. Now, it's more reliable. So the max heart rate really doesn't tell you much. You know, all it tells is that this person can, they can get their heart to beat a lot. But there's, you know, there's, there's no real correlation between having a super high heart rate and being an amazing athlete. Right? So I know lots of runners who are way faster than me, but their max heart rate is nearly 20 beats lower than mine. So, you know what you... Yeah, you know what and I know
0: one of our listeners, um, Dermot Canning, was in touch there during the week saying that his heart rate, I think, went as high as 200, where you'll see it in a lot of the the formulas, like the Maffetone formula, that they often used 180 minus your age. But for somebody who has a max heart rate like Dermot of, up in, of 200, how does he work backwards from 200 as opposed to maybe the average 175, 180? So yeah, the the, the max heart rate maybe isn't the right starting point for when we're establishing our different training zones.
1: Well, I can tell you very quickly why it isn't. So for instance, a standard formula that uses that will say, okay, they'll say your um, lactate threshold would be, let's say, 88% of your max heart rate. Mm. But that's not true for most people. So for some people, it's a little bit higher, and for most people, it's a little bit lower. So that means you don't learn anything from that. You just have a shot in the dark, you know, and then you you have this lactate heart rate that is not accurate. Uh, And that's actually the the operational uh, number. It's the number you can actually use for something because the lactate heart rate tells you when you move from uh, moderate intensity to hard intensity. So knowing that and having the right number there, roughly the right number, is actually useful but taking your max heart rate and then calculating a percentage that may or may not be right is not useful.
0: Yeah. You you could end up running um, fairly comfortably at around 170 beats per minute, which who who knows where where that might take you. Um, But continue on with that process anyway. We're trying to establish our our different heart rate zones, Rennie. We started off with the 200 meter runs, the 10 second um, power test as well. What would be next?
1: Yeah. So the next test is a, it's called a six-minute test. And it's basically very, very simple. It's a six-minute time trial. So nice, long warm-up, and then six minutes on a flat surface as hard as you possibly can. Um, and that is to find a pace. I'll give you a scientific term first, and we will explain it in layman's terms. It's called VO 2 max. That means velocity or pace at your VO2 max. Now, people probably, a lot of people listening will know that VO2 max is how much oxygen you can take in and the more oxygen you can take in the bigger engine you have for endurance sports because obviously oxygen is a fuel so if you can take in six liters it's better than if you can take in five because there's more fuel available to you but in itself it doesn't mean so much but it tells us kind of where is the upper level of your endure, current endurance potential and the six minute test tends to give you the pace at which you first start using your full lung capacity like that. Mm -hmm. And when that pace is very low compared to the other paces that we'll find in the other tests, it tends to become a bottleneck. So this is something scientists and coaches have found out over the years that a lot of people actually, uh, they might be able to take in a lot of oxygen. and We don't measure that, right? We can't measure that with this test. You'd have to go to a lab. But we know that if you run as hard as you can for six minutes, you will be roughly running at at that intensity where that happens, right? So this is kind of an estimate. And we know then if that pace is very low, that, you, okay, you can take in a lot of, you know, you, you can run hard, but you can't run fast when you run hard. And that's a problem. So very often, you know, when you see that that is low, you will attack it fairly early in training which is counterintuitive when people are used to always putting slow running first mm, yeah um, you know so, so that that's what why we do that test because if it's it's we have these percentages um, that we can compare but maybe let me explain that fully at the end just because people haven't seen the full picture yet so it, it might be yeah. confusing if i go further into it now
0: okay so next one up so we've done our 10 second test our 200 meters we've done our six minute test and i know for a lot of club runners over the years that are used to maybe the track that six minute test was often maybe a 3k race and 3k races are ideal for establishing that after we've done that one renee what's next on the list though
1: Next is the thirty-minute test. So that's called the lactate threshold test, basically, um, yeah. and that's the same principle. Nice long warm-up, and then you run thirty minutes, balls out, so as hard as you can. Um, yeah. And that's a very demanding test because it's essentially a race, right? It's very similar. Your fast guy is similar to your ten-k race, and if you're slower, yeah. it's it's kind of like a a long five, a four miles or eight-k type of. Of race, but it, it's a it, tough it, one, yeah. It's a tough one, so you need to be well rested, well recovered, and uh, no niggles. Uh, make sure it's a proper day, you know, don't do it on a day with a you know 20 kilometers of headwind or something like that, because it, it's not worth wasting your effort until you, unless you get a good reading. But all you do at the end of that test is you take down the average heart rate and the average pace that you held for those 30 minutes, and that gives you a very good indication of the lactate threshold. Now, in reality, this is the kind of funny thing about these tests. In reality, um, lactate threshold for most people is actually their one-hour race pace. So for very, very, very strong athletes, um, this test sometimes has to be a 60-minute test to get the real value, right? But most people in training are not as motivated to perform at their maximum as they are Uh, you know when they're doing an actual race and they're not in as good shape either so experience has just shown that if you do an all-out 30-minute test you usually get a good value and
0: And I I suppose a lot of discipline Rennie would be needed for the athlete in that as well to get their pacing right because you don't want to bunk after 15 minutes of that either because you've gone off too fast so you do need a little bit of pace judgment for such a test
1: Yeah. And uh, this is, even for the six minute test, I see this and, uh, you know, for that reason, one great thing you can do with these tests is that once you've done them once and you then decide, well, now I'm going to go train for six weeks to improve one of these particular thresholds, uh, you can go back then and do a retest, you know, and this is really nice because most of us just train and we hope for the best and and that's not very scientific you know so it's it's not because then you never really see did it actually work you might have an idea and if you run a good race it would be an indication but this way we can actually you could do a six minute test then you could work on six minute pace for four to six weeks and then you could do another test and if it's better the training probably worked with the one caveat that was what you just brought up it could be that you're just getting better at pacing the test right (laughs) The, the first few times that can happen
0: Sure. Okay. Okay. Anything after the thirty-minute test, Renee? Anything else before we sit down and establish our five zones?
1: Yeah. So you have the last one, which is the easiest, but also the fiddliest, uh, which is the aerobic <laughs> threshold outdoor test. Uh, yeah. This this test this, irritates. This,
0: this is a tricky one, um, And for somebody who, like me, who just cannot breathe through their nose while running, this is a very tricky one. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the aerobic threshold is difficult to find without a lab because it's, it's, it's easy, right? So that means um, at what what part of your easy running is the end of your easy running? That's basically the question you're trying to ask. When does it stop being easy and it moves into to medium? So the test we use is a test that is described as well on a website uh, called uphillathlete.com. That's actually where I got it from. And, and it has a 15 minute warm up. And after the 15 minute warm up, uh, you should be running so easily that you are breathing through your nose. And this is where a lot of people have problems, because some people are not used to nose breathing, or they might have blocked sinuses, or they might have actually detrained the little muscles in the nose, because they always breathe through their mouth, all these kinds of problems, and they can't do this test. So for them, I use a different one. But to tell you the truth, most people can do it. And most people that succeed you know in in the first or second go. so after the warm-up you just keep jogging away easily and after every three minutes you try and increase your intensity enough that you add five beats to your heart rate right so you need you need a monitor for all of these if that wasn't clear yet and so let's say you're chugging away at 130 for three minutes then you up it to 135 and you're like oh yeah i'm still breathing through the nose it's very comfortable then suddenly you add another five to 140 and you notice this urge to start breathing with your mouth at that stage you take it back two to three beats so let's say back to 137 this is where it's fiddly right very accurate you have to Mm -hmm. be with this very focused and then you record 15 minutes of running at exactly these, let's say 137 BPM as in this case. And you record the pace for that as well. That would be the best estimate really you can get for the aerobic threshold without having you know, blood tests and the, the gas mask on to, to establish it. There are a few other ways, right? But this yeah. would be one, one, one way that, that we would do it. And, and that would then finish the picture right so now we have four test results and we have the numbers and now we just need to figure out how to use them
0: great and then i mean i'm conscious running as well that we don't want to overwhelm people with talk of four different tests and then we're left with all these figures so i mean i know you're very good at your time and you're always very receptive to people sending in questions to running coach ireland but just to finish off maybe today's segment what then happens when you have all those four test results? What do you do? You establish, I think, five different heart rate zones, and maybe talk us briefly through then how you apply them to the training of each individual athlete.
1: Yeah, so the first thing we would do, we would go into whatever tool we use, um, whether it's online or if it's just a training diary, and we would write down, the first thing we want to find is the top of zone two, because that's the end of your easy, right? And that's critical because you, you're mm-hmm. gonna be 80% of your running at least at easy pace. And that means you need to know where that ends. So let's say it's 145, just the sake of example, you put in 145, that's the top of your zone two. Yep. Then you take 10% off that. So let's say 10% would be 15 beats um, in this case, so that would bring you, so this is my phone ringing, there, open in the background. <laughs> so no turned, problem, turned, work
0: away, work away.
1: No, so, so I've turned it off, so sorry to the listeners there. But um, so you take 15 beats off the 145, right? So that brings you down to 130. So that means you have a zone 2 now that's called 130 to 145. Everything, the 10% below that is zone 1, right? So that will be very easy, right? So that would be 130 and below. Now, that's the first basically major zones taken care of. So then we take the heart rate from the 30-minute test. Let's say it's 165, and we put that in. That's the top of your zone three. So that means your zone three is basically 145 to 165. And that's all your many medium paces. Uh, At this stage, as a coach, I look at how big is the difference between these two. If it's more than ten percent, it shows that the runner needs more endurance development, that because they are mm-hmm. called aerobically deficient. So that yeah. would all. So in this case, there's fifteen beats between. Uh, so it's actually very close to ten percent, right? So it's nearly good enough. But let's say it had been one hundred and thirty and one hundred and sixty-five. Then it's a clear sign we need to work. We really need to work on the easy running because this runner is very weak there. So, um, then we would put in the, um, the VO2 max heart rate. And, and that would be the top of zone four, essentially. And everything above that is kind of sprint, uh, very, very intense work.
2: Yeah. So, that,
1: so that would give you your basic profile. Now, from my point of view, and this is more than what most people would do, I also, I, I know roughly what the relationship between these values should be um, from various research. So I would look at whenever these zones are too narrow, that means that two of the values are too close to each other it shows a bottleneck. So for instance, if your uh, six minute pace is, let's say only 10 seconds per kilometer faster than your 30 minute pace, that would show you that the six minute pace is a bottleneck. And in that case, I would always try if the runner is able to have a six minute session for the first block of the training, that is a little bit faster than the six minute test pace. So we can basically push that on a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So that that's the sort of thinking that you would have to put into this.
0: It really is a fascinating area, and is isn't it? I mean, it, it, there's so many things that if you get right the results that you would get on race day then would be phenomenal. You'd avoid overtraining, you'd work on all your weak areas, and you would leave chance and look out of it. And hopefully you would get the, the fantastic results from scientific evidence-based training.
1: Yeah, and you will see as well that you can't keep everything maximized all the time. You know, that's a very interesting thing. You know, you will see often after a long, long block of ultra training, for instance, we will notice that the next time we test something like the six minute pace, that it's gone down. So the runners obviously fitter. There is a bottleneck emerging and, you know, it mightn't be a priority straight away because maybe they can do another ultra and it won't be a problem. But if you keep ignoring the six minute pace, it's going to keep dropping. And one day it'll drop so low that it's too close to the other thresholds. And then they can't develop anymore. And this is what happens to the people who kind of get into cycles of, you know, just continuous, long, slow distance races where they totally ignore, let's say, the max pace and the VO2 max pace. And eventually then they create a bottleneck and suddenly their performances stop improving or they even start to get worse. You know, even they might be training more in terms of pure volume and they can't understand this. And this is then because you, you, you've you lost the quality just because it's use it or lose it, right? The older dash. Um, so you have to maintain every now and again these, at least these four thresholds. So I would, if I was a runner, I'd probably retest them a few times a year, you know, and just, and just don't let them slide. You know, whatever speed you were given, Keep it and, um, and then develop your endurance within that alongside that.
0: Yeah, no, listen, really. Thanks, a million for for that piece today, and and I've seen some of the Excel sheets that you keep as well from over a decade now of of coaching different athletes and recording all of these stats. So it's all evidence based. Just great time and energy and research gone into all of this information that you're giving us today. So, and um, if anybody does want to reach out and give you a shout, really, they can get you on RunningCoach.ie on Facebook and on Instagram as well. And I'm sure you'll be happy. Very, very happy to help them out and establish their different heart rate zones. And hopefully, René, fingers crossed, get them ready for some racing in um, midsummer time or early autumn at the latest. René, thanks a million for this week and we look forward to talking to you next time. And René, maybe an idea for next time is we've looked at easy running, we've looked at establishing heart rate zones and maybe next week we could look at training in the upper epilogue of zone four and zone five and how often we need to maybe run in those zones.
1: Yes, I think that'd be quite interesting actually. I think we haven't if we've talked about it, I've forgotten. So it'd be do it. <laughs> <good.
0: laughs> okay, ready, thanks, man. And we look forward to you talking to you next time.
1: All right. Talk to you all. Bye bye. <music> My name is Sarah McCormack.
2: My name is Brian Fury. My name is Nicola Duncan. My name is Zach Hanna. My name is Mark Ryan. I'm a mountain runner. I'm a mountain runner. I'm a mountain runner. I'm a mountain runner.
1: I'm a mountain runner.
2: runner. runner. Hi, my name is Harriet and I'm a mountain runner. You're listening to Trail Running Ireland. Let's go.
1: Let's go. Let's go. (laughs)
0: Evan great to have you back on the show and Evan you're our first special guest to come back for a second time so it must oh, been the first time you're on
2: good stuff that's a uh, that's an honor so i suppose I'm, uh, I'm i'm the first in the in the two podcast club then for you <laughs> absolutely now we're delighted to have you back evan because i think there is
0: a general sense that everybody's got through the winter You know, there's a little bit of hope in the air that we're all looking towards this summer, and at the very, at the very least, some autumn racing. And I know from talking to a lot of clients in winning Coach Ireland with Renee, to a lot of listeners of the podcast as well, everybody has set and some racing targets for the summer so i think Mm -hmm. it's an ideal time maybe just to check in on nutrition so we put it out at the start of the week to get the questions in to you and we've got about we've got a good 11 or 12 questions to get through so will we just Mm -hmm. rock on with it
2: yeah yeah no time make the present i suppose we'll uh we'll we'll try and fit as many as we can in so look if i start going off on a tangent just let me know and uh I'll, i'll try and stay on the question but i have a tendency to talk so um, unless we want to make this a, a three-episode bumper special, I'll I'll try my best. <laughs> well, to stick well, on we'll the get you back
0: into the three podcast club.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, as a, as a
0: general opener, Evan, um, one question that came in from Barry Lennon was that when we're training for a marathon or a long race and we're logging maybe the typical sixty to seventy miles, which I think maybe a lot of our listeners do, what indicators are there to look out for when our diet? isn't quite right are we whether we're eating too much eating too less because i suspect you're going mm-hmm. to say evan that it's not just about how much we weigh how much weight we're gaining or how mm-hmm. much weight we're losing there's probably other signs to show yeah. that our nutrition isn't quite on point
2: there definitely is it's a, it's a good question you know not everyone likes to weigh themselves So we even like, to be honest, weight itself is in an erroneous measure. So I I have some clients, say, people going on a four or five hour cycle at the weekend and some ultra runners. And when we carb them up, they're heavier the day after their long session. That's when they're the heaviest because they have complete glycogen saturation, massive water retention, and big fecal loads. So just off the bat, weight alone is a pretty crap way to monitor like if you're eating enough or not. Uh, you'll, you'll see a trend over a couple of months, couple of weeks, but weight and waist circumference are good for checking, are there changes in your body fat? Um, so you can use dual, dual factor authentication, I suppose, for weight. So th- there's that actual measured side. From a subjective point of view, if you're not eating enough, typically speaking, what, what does happen in someone who has something like relative energy deficiency syndrome Cortisol levels are absolutely through the roof, full of catecholamines, they have low blood sugar. So here's some other things to look out for that might tell you we probably need to eat a little bit more here. Number one, you wake up in the middle of the night hungry. Number two, you find yourself reaching for junk food. You're not really sure why you're doing it. Um number number three, you find it hard to sleep. So that's, that's pretty common in overtraining, or I like to call it under-recovery. Um, and again, it's that massive amount of cortisol that can be corrected to a degree with food. Um, yeah. Number four, you're not able to tolerate your workload. So when people don't eat enough, if you look at how your body uses fuel sources, primarily we rely on glucose, then it's fats, then it's amino acids. If you don't have enough carbs in your diet and that's what most people miss when they when they're not eating enough and they do big miles you're going to rely heavier or to a higher degree on fatty acid oxidation which is very inefficient so you might start to see in training at the same heart rate you're much slower so your economy goes down or your exercise tolerance drops or you find you're not able to do the same paces same distances or it just feels harder all of those things will paint a picture collectively that you're not eating enough you know Yeah, there
0: was one very interesting one that you said there, just about sleeping at night time, Evan, and I mean, if we don't get our sleep right, well, then we have no chance to to get a good week of in. in. You mentioned waking up at night time, cortisol levels high, and I must admit, it actually happened to me there last week, Evan, when I did, my first real big pace run of the season a 45 minute effort up the mountains last week and for the mm-hmm. first time now in a long time that night I just couldn't sleep and which you know I should have been out to sleep because I should have been exhausted which I probably was mm-hmm. but I had a very hard tempo run that morning I had a very busy day with and with the kids and I just couldn't switch off I mean are there any food things that we can take to help us yes. sleep at night, terrible teas, for example, or yeah. food isn't the
2: solution. So I suppose if you have someone who has insomnia, something like that, which you you don't, by the way, insomnia is as as like chronic thing where it takes a very long time to fall asleep pretty consistently. If you have something like that, medication and possibly talking to a psychologist or what you're looking to do. Otherwise, for for, for most people, what can help them get to sleep a little bit better, a few simple things. Cut your coffee off or your caffeine intake about five, six hours before bed. That's number one. Number two, having a high glycemic index meal about four hours before your uh, desired bedtime. So something like a bowl of rice rispies, and a bagel with jam, some dried fruit, a smoothie, um, okay. and not, not, not eating too close to bed. If you want to eat nearer to bed, two kiwis, really, really good. So all of these things, uh, what, what they do basically is, they help your body um, decrease what's called sleep latency. So the amount of time it takes you to fall asleep, essentially by increasing the amounts of circulating tryptophan, and in slightly increasing your blood sugar. So that tryptophan can get shuttled across by insulin into your, into your, into your brain. Um, through the blood-brain barrier, where it's made into melatonin. So those like the, the kiwis, things like pistachio nuts, turkey, milk, even you hear those commonly uh, talked about as sleep-friendly foods because yeah. it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare for a food to have a high or appreciable amount of tryptophan, um, so that's why they help do that. Okay, yeah. uh, fascinating. I hadn't heard that one.
0: before yeah. Yeah, about the kiwi the kiwi yeah. sounds great Evan and, um, I'm sure people will be delighted to hear that it's okay to have a bowl of rice krispies after a hard day's, um working and running <laughs> um, yeah. it, it leads on nicely to our nice topic and, and about what to eat during our big, long runs and our ultra-training sessions. And a couple of people had similar questions. For example, Mm -hmm. Steve Moran and Chris Lawless pretty much asked the same team. Um, Steve asked... What would you recommend from a car-based drinks point of view for the average standard long run on a Sunday? Should we all just be taking Morton, for example, Evan m the, the gel and the drink that Kachoka used so well during his sub two-hour marathon run? Is that simply the best on the market or, or are they just good at marketing?
2: It's a good one and they're also good at marketing. Like Morton, you can't really reinvent the wheel with sports drinks, right? If, I'll just go through some very quick uh, intestinal physiology to, to explain this. In your intestines, you have two carb receptors, GLUT5 and SGLT1, all right? So GLUT5 can suck up around 30 grams of fructose per hour. The SGLT1 can take up around 60 grams of glucose, dextrose, or maltodextrin an hour. So that's where that two to one ratio comes from, okay? okay. Just just FYI. If you're trying to maximize your carb intake to around 90 grams an hour, which is the most a human can do according to the research during exercise, you need to have that two to one ratio. So anything that has the two to one in it, Martin, um, Torque, High Five, they're more or less all the same thing. Martin just has good marketing. It looks sleek. It's not different. Um, perhaps it mixes a little bit better and there's less, I suppose, uh, you know, uh, artificial flavorings in it um, for most people at- attaining 90 grams of carbs an hour is unnecessary unless you're knocking away at a fairly decent tempo for more than four or five hours okay most okay. people will be just fine with 60 grams so that that can be achieved by using your bog standard high five and either some dried fruit haribo jellies or a gel every 40 ish minutes what I find working with like ultra endurance runners, as I know there are a few who listen to this podcast, texture change. So you, you, it's really desirable to have texture change, taste changes on those very long runs. Um, so I find it helpful for people to mix it up between that using one base drink that works. And just, just to note, if anyone has tummy issues or IBS or anything like that, commercial products that have fructose in it are probably going to make that significantly worse in exercise so if you're someone who's kind of bogged down with stomach problems you're you're looking to stick to something like an SIS gel and maltodextrin powder to make up your carb drinks just FYI Okay.
0: And that was the question that Chris Lawless and Andrew Scorn had for us, Evan. That they were talking about that when we push on to beyond the marathon distance towards our big ultras, like our 100K ultras, where we can't be taking a gel every 40 minutes for, you know, six hours plus. So they were wondering what type of solid foods would you suggest? And I've seen a lot of ultra runners on the continent, for example, take avocados. Um, eat boiled eggs. So I'm sure there's probably a conversation that we could have for 20 minutes around this. But just a, a quick it. overview. Yeah, a quick overview, maybe Evan, for you know your own thoughts on what we can eat once we're gone, we're gone past four hours, five hours, and just that we can't stomach
2: our okay. gels. So I suppose first thing there, if you're gone over three, four hours on the trot, need to take in protein as well. So what I would often recommend there is if your stomach can handle it, um, something like a little protein ball or a protein bar. But so that's not always possible for a runner. So using the likes of um, essential amino acids or you know your often nutrition amino acids, mixing those into your bottles with your carb drinks is often necessary. Um, so that's that's number one. That's something I would put in place for any ultra endurance runner on the track for a long time easy digestible protein sources so your muscles don't figure, essentially uh themselves and throughout your run number two if you're looking to mix it up between carb sources there's no need to be using gels all the time you'll be perfectly fine with medjool dates dried apricots some banana chips and um, energy bars harry jellies all of those things are perfectly fine there's no good food or bad food the whole principle is can we get four to 600 mils of fluid per hour in, some sodium, some amino acids if it's really long, and simple, easy to digest sugars. That's all you need to do. Whatever way you do that, that's perfectly fine.
0: Okay. And it was interesting you mentioned protein as well, Evan. for mm-hmm. I can understand the benefits for the longer races to help your muscles not break down as much but there, there's a lot of say intermediate um, trail running races that are typically maybe three to four hours that a lot of our listeners would do would they yeah. get a performance benefit from taking a bit of protein in that type of rest uh, that type of race or no. are just enough for a three to four hour maybe marathon trail race
2: no three to four hours is fine so where, where this uh, it's coming from. If you're looking at protein guidelines for athletes, uh, what you're looking at, primarily, the most important thing is that you get your overall protein intake, mate. So for an endurance athlete, male, it's 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kg per day. Female, it's 1.6 grams approximately per day, uh, per kilogram of body weight. So that's number one with protein. Number two, is that you get it from high biological value sources so dairy meat protein products fish eggs etc and number three then if you're looking to kind of get an a plus on protein you're looking to get a decent hate within every three hours So that's that's where it kicks in so if your race is about five hours or more you're not going to be anywhere near that three-hour window. In fact, it might be six or seven hours between protein feedings. So those amino acids do become quite important there. If it's a marathon, it's not the end of the world. That's perfectly fine. But in those types of sessions where you're you're three or four hours on the go with no protein enduring it, you would look to get a protein hit in ASAP afterwards. So in that case, only is a protein shake required post-workout usually it's more sort of the carbs that are important to PSAP oh, okay super and to take a step
0: back before we even get to the race itself um, Barry Lennon was wondering Evan that is there a perfect breakfast that we can take before our long run or before even our marathon or ultra on race day I know it depends Evan as well what we're looking maybe to get from the long run whether we want to try and you know, adapt our body to a fat-based fueling strategy. And we might go out just with a a double espresso and and a bit of coconut oil or a bit of butter in our coffee, maybe before we go out. Or we might just look for a little bit of a top up after a night's Mm -hmm. sleep. Maybe we hone it down to race day and whether that's a a marathon or an ultra race. Is there a perfect breakfast, Evan, for for
2: that? So I suppose... To answer that question, there is no perfect breakfast. There are guidelines to look at pre exercise. Okay. But just before I get into that, just to note, right, the research is pretty conclusive that fat adaptation is not worth it. It's not a worthwhile thing to look to achieve for a multitude of reasons, even for wow. an endurance athlete or an ultra endurance athlete. And I know, I know I'm going to get so much flack for this because people tend to be polarized. But here's the gist, right? Yes, you use more fat when you're at lower intensities, the intensities you use in longer uh, distance races. However, you do still contribute carbohydrates in that equation. And when your glycogen runs out, which it will, after about two to four hours, depending on the intensity and what you've eaten prior, you will bonk and you will suffer the symptoms of hypoglycemia and low glycogen levels perceived exertion going up, drops in central drive, increased reliance on amino acids, metabolism, um, lower lactate thresholds, all of those things still kick in, right? And when we look at fat fat adaptation, the people who do it or engage in it are already well-trained athletes. There is a biological ceiling as to how much fat you can oxidize, right? So, A trained endurance athlete, someone who's been running for years, five years or more, there's very little to gain from doing specific fat adaptation training, right? It's not as useful as you might think. And if we look at some of the recent research, like the Supernova study in Australia, they did that on race walkers. No one ever studies race walkers. So I was obviously (laughs) very interested. Um, (laughs) If you're looking to read it, it's very interesting. What they did was they tested walkers, them on high carb and high fat and here's the cool thing the guys in the high fat versus low low fat or low high carb even um when they were on a high fat approach or even a low carb approach whatever way you want to call it their vo2 max is about 10 to 15 percent higher versus when they're on the carbs and that's because of the metabolic adaptations that occur mitochondrial biogenesis angiogenesis increased ventillary thresholds, all those things, right? So that that sounds good on paper, but they did time trials with them and they are about 10 to 20% slower. So whilst your VO2 max goes up, essentially all it showed is that your body works increasingly harder to go at the same pace. So your your economy and your efficiency drops by about 10, 15, 20% in some people. And that's because fat oxidation is very inefficient even if you become quote unquote adapted. Okay. So for for that reason, it's a bad idea. And high high fat approaches, even if you do it in training and you think great on race dish or have a few gels, it's not going to work. High fat diets, as little as seven days cause insulin resistance. So you're not gonna be able to actually use the carbs as efficiently as if you were using them all along. And I I will get to your question in a sec. I just want to finish um, elaborating on this because there's one last bit to this.
0: Yeah, I know it's fascinating. Please do. And that's why we love talking to you because I know that you'll have read up on the latest research and study and that everything that you're saying to us, it's all proven scientific, fact-based research. So uh, by all means, please
2: go on, Evan. It's great stuff. Okay, okay. So let's... uh... Let's look at it for a second. I do advise clients to do little bits of fat field work, only when it's appropriate to do so at appropriate time points for small amounts of time. So less than 60 minutes, very low intensity, never the week of a race, never the day before after a tough training day, no more than twice a week, three times a week max. That's it. Wow. That's, all, that's all they do. And the reason is that's enough to get that mitochondrial biogenic effect the angiogenesis effect. Um, some people find it easier from a, a tummy point of view to train on an empty stomach. So that, that's just practical for them. But the reason we do it like that, the side effect of doing fat fuel training, you bonk your glycogen levels, your blood sugar is low. So from a dietary point of view, you're more likely to give in to cravings, comfort to eat, and have bigger portions throughout the day. So for a weight management point of view, which is what a lot of people ultimately run for, in my experience anyway, uh, that's counterproductive. From a recovery point of view, gl- glycogen repletion is one of the main things that will tell a sports scientist your exercise rigidness or you know how well you want to tolerate a session. Uh, if it's a tough session in particular, you, you're looking at at least two days if you really empty your glycogen tank before it's like back to anywhere where you could do any kind of hard work. So your recovery yeah. level drops or it takes longer. So you can train less or, or get less from your training. Final wow. two things. When your glycogen is low, your muscle protein synthesis response to training is much lower. So you're not going to build muscle as effectively. You're not going to rebuild things, make, make strength gains, anything like that. And your immune system is a bit suppressed. So all in all, your recovery drops. So fat-fueled training, adaptation very bad idea in big amounts really bad idea as well just to point out coconut oil butter coffees and you if you were looking for the most effective way to give yourself diabetes or a heart attack eating things packed full of saturated fats would be exactly what you would be looking to do so real real stupid stuff Um, yeah
0: yeah, it's great advice, Evan, because I'm sure there's a large percentage of our listeners. And I must admit, Evan, that I am one of these people who that I need to train early in the morning because of work and family commitments. So pretty much mm-hmm. six, seven days a week, um, I'm out the door within maybe an hour of getting out of bed and I get my training in okay. before I start work. Okay. But from listening to that latest bit of research and your advice there, I really should be trying to get something into me three or four of those mornings before i go out training because at the moment i'm i'm pretty much training seven days a week nearly and without anything in the in the stomach before i go out training and i suspect probably there's a lot of people who are early morning trainers who just kind of roll out of bed uh, a bit of coffee get their runners on and out they go and then that's done for the day it's great but Mm -hmm. it sounds like medium to long term we could be
2: asking for trouble. Yes, you're definitely not going to progress at the rate you would like to. So a good, a good analogy here. Athletes oftentimes mistake progress or motion for progress. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Mistaking motion for progress. Okay. You, you could work much smarter. So what I'll do, I'll show you or give you the insight into how to fuel day-to-day training. And then race day, it's just kind of you do that on a bigger scale. So here's what you can do. If you're doing a training session early morning and you're not able to eat a big breakfast, to time constraints. You don't like to eat at five, 6am, whatever time you get up at, exactly, you just can't do it. Here's what you do about two hours before bed. You're looking for a decent sized meal. So that high glycemic index meal I mentioned earlier on, move it slightly closer to bed, big okay. bowl of cereal, big bagel, whatever. Then another carbohydrate snack before you go to bed. So, some, something there like uh, a whey or casein protein uh, mixed with some parajotes, for example, that, uh, that causes slow release, your glycogen tank will fill up overnight, you'll have a higher amount of circulating amino acids, the, the training session won't be as hard on you the following day. The okay. morning of, if you have, you said about 45 minutes to an hour before you go, between getting up and going, immediately downstairs, get a glass of water. Get a coffee. If it's a milky coffee, that's better. Throw some sugar into it. And if you can stomach half a banana, do that. That way, you're getting around 30 to 40 grams of carbs in the door. Significantly better than nothing. Okay, super. Great advice. So, yeah. so. I'll
0: definitely take that on board, Evan. And maybe I might even give you a shout in a couple of month, months' time. i let you know how I get on because I'm coming off of, a... Yeah. Uh, a three-month base period now, which is pretty much all being faster training in the morning time. And over the last two weeks, I've began yeah. to then bring back in hard training sessions, um, reps, pace runs into my training to try and get ready for the summertime. I'm probably lucky that you know I'm listening to you talking about those eating techniques there to save me mm-hmm. from bonking too soon in my in my season and yeah. running out of yeah. steam um, too quickly. And I must admit. That that probably happened to me because I was training like that, training fast mm-hmm. and pretty much most days um, in the yeah. season before coronavirus came along, which would have been what, yeah, uh, 2019, early 2020. <laughs> that that by long time midway through the season, I was whacked. Now, I, I was able <laughs> to maybe put one performance out of a bag every out of the bag every month, but I was struggling mm-hmm. the rest of the
2: time because I was running on mm-hmm.
0: empty every morning.
2: Yeah, so I suppose you know the arguments among. Sports scientists, sports nutritionists, researchers, you're training for performance or adaptation. So this way you get the best of both worlds, you get the adaptation without the, I suppose, unnecessary impact on performance or health. So this is the the best way to do it that I've seen. Uh, Just to to actually answer the question that you... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it feels like it was asked about 15 minutes ago at this stage. But Perfect breakfast, what, Dave, that Barry asked. For, if there was one. Well, yeah.
0: well, I think we're, we're well so, on our way to get the answer. But what do you, what do you have for us?
2: So it's actually quite pleasant. Um, for a race day, optimal performance, think higher intensity, higher carb intake. It's a breakfast, low fiber, low fat, minimize risk of tummy problems. Yeah. My personal go-to's, a stack of pancakes. So not, not your instagram model influencer protein banana pancakes they're disgusting normal pancakes that you make flour cover them in maple syrup not honey honey is very high in fructose might make you sick maple syrup is not so that's okay. that's an easy way to get 100 120 grams of carbs in the door otherwise a massive bowl of porridge with your syrup in it a couple of berries have um, have a bagel with it or have a uh, have a slice of toast with some jam That's all you need to do. Three or four hours before your race, two hours pre-race, very strong coffee. So French press coffee or nitro cold brew or something like that. And a banana, that's more than enough. And sip away on a bottle of water or a sports drink, the 60 to 90 minutes pre your race start. And when you start your race like that, you couldn't possibly be in a better position to perform. Brilliant.
0: And I noticed there was no real mention of any protein in that morning routine. Now, I know your oats will have a little bit of protein, maybe, what, seven or eight grams per 100. Um, but you didn't mention any chicken breasts or boiled eggs no. or even protein supplements to throw in on top of your porridge.
2: No. So the, the reason being, like, if you're having, let's say, let's go for the pancakes without adding whey protein into it, a large pro- portion of that is about 20 grams of protein anyway. Okay. A big bowl of porridge, the oats, the milk. If you throw some seeds in um, and you have a milk-based coffee with it, again, you're 20, 25 grams without any protein powder in. Um, so you know, if it's an ultra, yeah, you probably would throw a scoop away into your into your breakfast that morning and uh, you'd be putting those amino acids into your bottle before you get started. Okay. And you'd have you'd have a you'd have a fueling strategy. Um, during the race but i suppose race day and day-to-day nutrition are a bit different the focus wouldn't be on let's make your protein intake perfect it's you have to you have to stack it up against i don't want you to vomit or have diarrhea in your race so okay. that okay. uh that will be more important than you just you just do, do your best with it um, okay. typically, typically. Great. Okay.
0: Well, well, let's maybe change pace and take a breath and move on to a slightly different topic. Mm -hmm. Snacks. And I suppose that the question is the snack or not the snack. Simon Kelly, Evan, who normally is on the show every week, giving us our race results. Mm -hmm. And of course, we haven't had Simon on for a couple of weeks now because there's no races to report on. So so we miss Simon and hopefully we'll have him back on soon. But his question was... um, Top three daily good snacks for a high volume daily runner. So your top snack picks. And that's, of course, if we even should be snacking, Evan. and maybe that's a point to start the
2: conversation on. Yeah, so I'm very pro-snack. So typically I'll try and structure my day, my client's days, if they have the time and it's feasible, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack in between, snack in between, snack in the evening. Maybe a small thing before bed if they're very active. So okay. my go-tos are more or less all the time, all real protein bars. Just, I'm, I'm quite lazy with food and I don't, I don't have time to, you know, always cook big meals. So those protein bars, they're actually made in Far and & Flour and & Kerry. Um, big fiber content, big protein content. I'll eat one of them a day if oh. I can. Then I will try and get something like a scar or quark yogurt with some mixed berries in it and some seeds. That's yeah. another go-to snack of mine. And uh, depends how I'm feeling then. I'll try and get a piece of fruit and a handful of nuts in. Or if I feel like I want it, I'll have some chocolate and a coffee and that's fine. A lot of people assume that because of what I do, I eat like a monk or hashtag clean and I don't. And nor, nor should people look to. There's no actual, there's no evidence anywhere, right, to suggest that having a quote unquote clean diet is better for you than a moderately balanced diet. Now that's a boring it's a boring approach and it's not a very marketable response um for me to say just have a balanced diet moderate everything but that's the truth you know that's yeah. that's really the, the best way to do it
0: yeah what was the name of that protein bar and i just missed it that you mentioned it
2: all real so if, if you go to my bio if you go onto my uh, profile on instagram i have a link there you can actually get a i think it's 10 percent off them um they're they're really they're really solid guys. Actually, Ross and Niles set the company up. It's it's relatively new. They yeah. wanted to make it with all Irish products. Uh, it, they have compostable uh, wrapping paper on them, and it, uh, it's it's a re- they're just really solid bars. Nutritionally speaking, they're they're pretty fast. And um, like I've yet to see anything better. So it's just the fact that they're Irish then as well, and fairly sound. Uh, Uh, I
0: certainly ask all the listeners to support that especially um, something that's Irish as you said and great to see people um, still being entrepreneurial as well moving on to maybe the next topic Evan, um, supplements Um, a couple of questions in there seems to be always questions on supplements Damien Conway asks and this Uh may be even more relevant for the year that's in it um, what are your thoughts on the supplement vitamin D and I've even heard this on mainstream radio and that that to help combat COVID nineteen, um, vitamin mm-hmm. D might actually be very helpful. And as you know, I'm based in Las Palmas. I'm stuck here, can't get home at the moment. And we actually yeah. have quite low rates of COVID. And I often wonder, is it because um, the Canary Islands are quite a sunny place and everybody is well topped up on vitamin D? So yeah. maybe. Apart from the um, potential side effects and benefits of um, preventing COVID, from a performance point of view, should we all mm-hmm.
2: be popping vitamin D um, pills into us? So I suppose the the link between vitamin D and say respiratory diseases is not new. It's been known for quite a while that athletes who are deficient in vitamin D have a majorly majorly increased risk of having an upper respiratory tract infection in. Uh, you know autumn winter so on on top of that just just with the covid thing vitamin d deficiency results in higher likelihood of getting covid and having worse symptoms and it's it's interesting you mentioned uh, you know where where you are at the moment and you would think that living in a sunny place helps just a bizarre a bizarre statistic and i only know it because i was studying there in malta which is probably similar latitude, very hot place, uh, an outdoorsy country, most of the people are vitamin D deficient because they stay inside a lot to stay out of the heat. So your, oh, okay. your, lo- your location doesn't automatically give you uh, vitamin D immunity, uh, I suppose would be the best way to conceptualize that. Yeah. And just with sports performance, then people who are vitamin D deficient have an increased risk of Connective tissue injuries and lower muscle strength. So there, there is a performance uh, enhancement to be having. A, a, what I'm, I'm wording this very awkwardly. It's not performance enhancing to take it. It's performance reducing to be deficient in it. So yeah. unless unless you drink a lot of fortified milk on a daily basis and eat salmon and mackerel almost every day, there's a very good chance you're deficient in it particularly if you live in Ireland, UK or Northern Europe. So about a thousand IUs a day is pretty good for an athlete and taking 50 to 100 micrograms of vitamin K with that is a good idea, unless you want to develop kidney stones so yeah,
0: and, and i know as well anybody I'm, I'm talking to like i always encourage them to try and get out for a walk in the morning time and just get some sunlight onto their skin which i think is a great natural way to get it and you know instead of maybe i, I don't know getting driving to the shop or whatever it might be um, just walk take the half an hour walk to the shop and that maybe might help as well yeah
2: 100 percent, 100 percent um so yeah, getting outside, like in the morning, you know, you mentioned that um, it's, it's important to get sunlight on your eyes and on your skin in general. Research does show that doing that earlier in the day can help synchronize your body clock. So if you're having trouble sleeping, uh, sunlight exposure earlier helps you, helps tell your body that, okay, this is when I should be awake and it helps you get to sleep better if you dim the lights at nighttime then as well. Just yeah. to, to link it back into that. Damien mentioned
0: fish oils. And Fiona was asking about the, the best vitamin supplement that you would recommend. And I've heard you say before, Evan, that fish oils are very, very important. And I'm not too sure if they're top of your vitamin supplementation. I know it's, it's client dependent as well. But mm-hmm. it, generally speaking, should we all be popping our omega-3 tablets into us? Or, or what should we all be taking And um, while, we're, while we're training hard?
2: so i suppose vitamin d is the most common thing and the vitamin okay. k with that um a lot of people are iron deficient so they need iron sometimes b12 calcium for lactose intolerant or postmenopausal and um, so those, those would be the most common things omega-3s can can be useful for people but to point out their i suppose their utility there is Correlational research showed that omega threes can help reduce DOMS, muscle-induced inflammation, and decrease risk of cardiovascular problems. And as a res- as a result, they're helpful recovery. So they're anti-inflammatory. It's not uh, it's it's not as potent as you would think. It is still important to get it in. So and the yeah. and ama- an omega three or krill oil is a good idea, but it only fits in as one part of the puzzle for for healthy fats. So if you're taking the omega three tablet or a capsule a day, which which I do. I do when I remember to do it one or two a day, and um, to get around a thousand milligrams of either a chizopentenoic or the cozahexanoic acid. Those are your two bioactive omega 3s. You okay. can get it from cheese seeds and flax seeds, what you get in that is alpha-linolenic acid, which isn't as highly bioavailable. So you're not gonna you're not gonna get what you need from doing that. Uh, uh, strictly speaking. So just to um, to summarize there. If you do uh, bulletproof coffee, eat a lot of butter, uh, eat coconut oil by the spoon, but take omega-3s, that's not going to kind of neutralize it. You need okay. to do, you, you know, have some olive oil, rapeseed oil spread on your meals, not frying with them, get your mixed nuts and seeds in, uh, try not to be frying in oils too much, try to use things like proactives, etc. cetera, Dane omega-3s will fit into the healthier overall lipid profile by themselves. They're not the biggest deal in the world. It's just something that you should look to do as 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 a finer detail. Okay, great.
0: I think we have just about enough time Evan, for our last topic for today. I hope okay, last question. It. We saved the, the best for last. And we had a couple of people writing in, in about treats. And we all okay. need some treats, especially for the times that we're living in, especially when we're training hard. And Sinead Connolly, for example, she asked, how yeah. do we get rid of our sweet tooth? The constant need to have a little bit of dessert after each main meal. Is it just down to better willpower needed? Or is there some secret brain chemistry at play? So how do we so, kick the habit of our sweet tooth, I mean, if we need to kick it at all, especially when we're training yes. so
2: hard? Exactly. I was going to say, is it something you need to kick? That's like saying, how do I make myself never be hungry? You know, it's, it's just a... <laughs> it's a physical response to what you're eating or not eating. So a sweet tooth, typically, I have a sweet tooth, but humans naturally evolve eating fruit, sweet, sweet things, you know? Uh, It's why glucose is our primary fuel source. We actively seek out sweet things. In cases that we have low blood sugar, we have skipped meals, we're training a lot and not eating enough carbohydrates, we're tired, bored, hungry, angry. uh, So... How would I put this? If you are prone to engaging with a sweet tooth, if you're training a lot, that will make it more likely that you're going to want to have sweet things, particularly if you're not really diligent with your diet during the day, you leave big gaps, you don't eat enough carbohydrates in general, then you're going to have a sweet tooth. Is it something you should look to get rid of? No, but it is something you should notice. If you have a particularly sweet tooth, ask yourself, um, why is this the case? Have I eaten enough carbs? Am I eating enough in general? Am I losing weight too quickly? Am I recovering appropriately after training? Look at those things first before you try and white knuckle yourself into a clean diet. I'm pretty pro-sweet tooth. Uh, I think a, small, like a moderate amount of chocolate a day or whatever you like is fine. And, and that, that should be the case. It's not something you should feel bad about or, or think that you're, you're being counterproductive with as long as you take all the other boxes.
0: Yeah, Barry Lennon was actually asking, Evan, if sugar-free drinks as, um, for example, Coke Zero, are mm-hmm. they, first of all, better than their standard Coke, normal Coke, because so I suspect you're going to say they are. Mm-hmm. But is Barry kidding himself by taking the sugar-free version? Should he just get rid of it altogether? Or uh, similar to what we were just saying there, are those sugar-free drinks, um, are, are they acceptable if we're training hard?
2: So a sugar-free A sugar-free drink, that was actually, you know, I was going to suggest some substitutes. If you have a very sweet tooth, you don't want to just automatically default to chocolate. Uh, Sugar-free drinks, coffees with sweeteners in them, uh, frozen yogurts, frozen berries, the all-real protein bars or any kind of protein bar, Uh, all of those things are perfectly suitable alternatives to just engaging with a sweet tooth. Popcorn as well, I don't know if I've mentioned that perfectly healthy things to go for all of them are uh, pro-health if you think about the fact that drinking sugar outside of exercise is really correlated with increased risk of type 2 diabetes fatty liver and obesity so you know if if you were trying to argue is flat coke better than regular coke as a training product you know degassing and taking an exercise then the regular stuff is better in every other scenario more or less, uh, the, the the sugar-free stuff is best. Okay okay so listen does
0: that okay make sense dark, yeah i'm okay with my dark chocolate barry's okay with his sugar-free coca-cola and maybe just yeah. a round off today evan let's round it off with a beer because simon kelly was wondering we mentioned simon earlier on simon just yeah. had one more question and simon was wondering about a nice post-race beer does that actually help for recovery and then he was also talking about um, a relatively new product i think on the market now correct me if i'm wrong um mm-hmm. isotonic beers he was saying brilliant or absolute (laughs) rubbish um Uh what do you reckon first of all is it okay to have a beer post a hard race and are these isotonic beers are they any use
2: so i suppose you know it depends how much beer you're drinking like if now here's the thing right if it's the big race you're training for for the season and that's the end of it a few beers is not a problem let's pretend you're an elite athlete preparing for tokyo in a few months and you just qualify Today, and you decided to go on the lash for three days, that's obviously not super because you have to get back on track immediately. Yeah. Beer can take away from your recovery. It does do that because it affects your sleep architecture. So sleep is where you get the actual response to your race. So if that was your goal race for the year or you're not too fussed about being the absolutely best athlete you can be, by all means, have a few beers. Don't, don't drink isotonic beers. It's not that they're bad. If you're going to celebrate, don't celebrate and a compromise. That would be my my advice. Go for something like a Coors Light, a Heineken Zero, or Carlsberg Zero. Lighter beers, and don't automatically assume a takeaway is required, and that the next day is a write off. If you do those things, one or two beers is fine. Okay. Well, listen, Evan,
0: it's been a real masterclass today. Evan, thank you very much for coming on. So some brilliant tips and hopefully that will set the listeners up for for the summer racing season when races do come back. Evan, I know that you've got a couple of spots available at the moment. You've just come to the end of your first cycle for the year, your first Uh three-month section with a lot of your clients. So there's a couple of spots available now for the second semester. If anybody wanted to get in touch with
2: you, where's the best place where they can find you? So best place to find me is on Instagram, at elinchfitnot.com Or visit my website, www.evanlynchfitnot.com. That's where I am based. I'm pretty responsive. If someone gets in touch, I'll usually try and call them within 24 hours. So leave your number and you'll get a call from me pretty sharpish. If you are looking to come on board, the next cohort is starting April 5th. Uh, I have approximately five spaces left at the moment. I've been able to um, take on about 15, 20 people this April. I'm I'm adding a few new things to the to the service. So there's a members portal. There's there's weekly check-ins, there's new resources for clients. Yeah, I'm just you know what I, I'm just looking forward to helping people actually race. People came out in January hoping that they would get to perform, do a couple of races. And now they've all done time trials and it's it's all gone very well. Like this this cohort between January and March, they've they've gone really well, like average weight loss is six, seven kilos per person performance increases happier with their diet their food sleep is better because there's, there's a lot of wins so i'm expecting more out of the next cohort because they'll actually get to race so we'll see their results come into fruition so Brilliant. if people are interested do act fast i don't want to have to put anyone on a waiting list so the spots do fill up quick so yeah get, get in touch if you're even on the fence about it we, we can check so i can do it Brilliant, super Evan. So maybe we can
0: touch base again at the end of the second quarter and then see how all of those clients did and uh, maybe get a few more questions and answers to you. Evan, thanks for meeting for today and we'll talk to you soon.
2: My pleasure. Have a good one.
0: That's a wrap for episode 24 of the Trial Running Ireland podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. And thank you, as ever, to our running coach expert, René Borg, and to Evan Lynch for joining us this week and going through all of those different questions. Do make sure to give him a shout-out, guys, if you need any nutritional advice. He's fantastic, and he's done a lot of great work with Athletics Ireland um, in the recent past as well. I mentioned just a couple of times during the two interviews about getting back racing. And this weekend, it's Sunday night now, just when I'm finishing off the show, i got back racing myself here where i'm based in las palmas and it was absolutely brilliant to get back racing hopefully hopefully everybody across europe and of course back home in ireland as well can't get back out racing soon there was a couple of interesting things about the race there that happened this saturday in terms of covid precaution and so on and first of all we had to sign Two different forms leading up to the race that we weren't suffering from any COVID 19 symptoms. We had to make a commitment not to bring any friends or family to the race area we went to collect our race number at a specific time of the day we had a 15 minute window to collect our race number and then on race morning itself it was pretty much just straight to the start line everybody was separated out um, i think two three meters apart all in different rows and then everybody went off one by one and then your time was just taken from when you crossed the starting line about 10 minute, 10 meters away from the holding area down to the finish line and then after the race nobody hung around everybody just went straight off, and it was all very safe and it was all great fun it was a really really great day great morning to be back out racing and fingers crossed everybody back home in ireland will be able to get back out training in good numbers training further away than the five kilometers from your house and get back racing for the summer time because if they can do it here in spain where i'm based at the moment it can be done in ireland as well so guys keep training keep well and looking forward to talking to you all in episode 25 in the next episode of the trail running ireland podcast everybody get your running gear on let's go